Hello, my friend. This is Glenda Taylor. In this podcast today, I want to read to you some things, some quotations from a number of sources, all of them that I have collected through the years that, oh, perhaps give me a little more insight into the tension that I and I know others feel within ourselves between a kind of tendency toward individualism and um, connectedness with others and with all else. I think so much of our experience in life really derives from that tension between these two given ways of being that can be opposites or they can be complements and how we deal with that tension and how we deal with those opposites or complements is so very important in our lives. And so I've chosen these excerpts really just to help us to think about and clarify those things um, as, as they are in us and as they have been described by these writers. Uh, there are a number of them, and, and I will see how much we can get into this little podcast. The first I want to read is from the book You Can't Go Home Again by Thomas Wolfe. And I quote, The whole arrangement suited George perfectly because it gave him both space and privacy. Here, Esther could come and go as she liked. Here, they could be alone together whenever they wished. Here, they could feed at the heart of love. The most important thing about it, however, was that this was his place, not theirs, and that fact reestablished their relations on a different level. Henceforth, he was determined not to let his life and love be one. She had her world of the theater and of her rich friends, which he didn't want to belong to, and he had his world of writing, which he would have to manage alone. He would keep love a thing apart and safeguard to himself the mastery of his life, his separate soul, his own integrity. Would she accept this compromise? Would she take his love but leave him free to live his life and to do his work? That was the way he told her it must be, and she said yes, she understood, but could she do it? Was it in a woman's nature to be content with all that a man could give her and not forever want what was not his to give? Already there were little portents that made him begin to doubt it. (laughs) And the second quotation is from Sons and Lovers by D.H. Lawrence. One day in March, he lay on the banks of Nethermere with Miriam sitting beside him. It was a glistening white and blue day. Big clouds, so brilliant, went by overhead. White shadows stole along on the water. The clear spaces in the sky were of clean, cold blue. Paul lay on his back in the old grass, looking up. He could not bear to look at Miriam. She seemed to want him, and he resisted. He resisted all the time. 
He wanted now to give her passion and tenderness, and he could not. He felt that she wanted the soul out of his body and not him. All of his strength and energy she drew into herself through some channel which united them. She did not want to meet him so that there were two of them, man and woman together. She wanted to draw all of him into her. It urged him to an intensity like madness, which fascinated him as drug-taking might. Close quote. The next is a quotation from Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson. During the early fall of her 27th year, a passionate restlessness took possession of Alice. Her mind became intensely active, and when, weary from the long hours of standing behind the counter in the store, she went home and crawled into bed, she could not sleep. With staring eyes, she looked into the darkness. Her imagination, like a child awakened from long sleep, played upon the room. Deep within her, there was something that would not be cheated by fantasies and that demanded some definite answer from life. Alice took a pillow into her arms and held it tightly against her breast. Getting out of bed, she arranged a blanket so that in the darkness it looked like a form lying between the sheets and kneeling beside the bed. She caressed it, whispering words over and over like a refrain. Why doesn't something happen? Why am I left here alone? She muttered. And then one night when it rained, Alice had an adventure. It frightened and confused her. She had come home from the store at nine, and found the house empty. Alice went upstairs to her room and undressed in the darkness. For a moment she stood by the window, hearing the rain that beat against the glass, and then a strange desire took possession of her. Without stopping to think of what she intended to do, she ran downstairs through the dark house and out into the rain. As she stood on the little grass plot before the house, and felt the cold rain on her body. A mad desire to run naked through the streets took possession of her. She thought that the rain would have some creative and wonderful effect on her body. Not for years had she felt so full of youth and courage. She wanted to leap and run, to cry out, to find some other lonely human and embrace him. On the brick sidewalk before the house, a man stumbled homeward. Alice started to run. A wild, desperate mood took possession of her. What do I care who it is? He is alone, and I will go to him, she thought. And then, without stopping to consider the possible result of her madness, called softly, Wait! Don't go away! Whoever you are, you must wait! The man on the sidewalk stopped and stood listening. He was an old man and was somewhat deaf. Putting his hand to his mouth, he shouted, What? What say? he called. Alice dropped to the ground and lay trembling. She was so frightened at the thought of what she had done that when the 
Man had gone on his way. She didn't dare get up to her feet, but crawled on hands and knees through the grass to the house. When she got to her own room, she bolted the door and drew her dressing table across the doorway. Her body shook as with a chill, and her hands trembled so that she had difficulty getting into her nightdress. When she got into bed, she buried her face in the pillow and wept brokenheartedly. What is the matter with me? I will do something dreadful if I'm not careful, she thought, and turning her face to the wall, began to try to force herself to face bravely the fact that many people must live and die alone, even in Winesburg, Ohio. This next one is also from Winesburg, Ohio, from a different story. Quote, it was past 11 o'clock that evening when old Enoch, talking to George Willard in the room in the Hefner block, came to a vital thing, the story of the woman, and of what drove him out of the city to live out his life alone and defeated in Winesburg. He sat on the cot by the window with his head in his hands, and George Willard was in a chair by the table, a kerosene lamp set on the table in the room, although almost bare of furniture, was scrupulously clean. As the old man talked, George Willard began to feel that he would like to get out of the chair and sit on the cot also. He wanted to put his arm about the little old man. In the half-darkness, the man talked, and the boy listened, filled with sadness. She got to coming in there after there hadn't been anyone in the room for years, said Enoch Robinson. She saw me in the hallway of the house, and we got acquainted. Every now and then she came and knocked at the door, and I opened it. In she came and sat down beside me, just sat and looked about and said nothing. Anyway, she said nothing that mattered. I had a feeling about her. She sat there in the room with me, and she was too big for the room. I felt that she was driving everything else away. We just talked of little things, but I couldn't sit still. I wanted to touch her with my fingers and to kiss her. Her hands were so strong, and her face was so good, and she looked at me all the time. The trembling voice of the old man became silent and his body shook as with a chill. I was afraid, he whispered. I was terribly afraid. I didn't want to let her come in when she knocked at the door, but I couldn't sit still. No, no, I said to myself, but I got up and opened the door just the same. She was so grown up, you see, she was a woman. I thought she'd be bigger than I was in that room. Enoch Robinson stared at George Willard, his childlike blue eyes shining in the lamplight. Again he shivered. I wanted her, and all the time I didn't want her, he explained. Then I began to tell her about my people, about everything that meant anything to me. I tried to keep quiet, to keep myself to myself. But I couldn't. I, I felt just as I did about opening the door. Sometimes I 
I just ache to have her go away and never come back any more. The old man sprang to his feet and his voice shook with excitement. One night something happened. I became mad to make her understand me and to know what a big thing I was in that room. I wanted her to see how important I was. I told her over and over. When she tried to get away, I ran and locked the door. I followed her about. I talked and talked. And then all of a sudden, things went to smash. A look came in her eyes, and I knew she did understand. Maybe she'd understood all the time. I was furious. I couldn't stand it. I wanted her to understand. But don't you see? I couldn't let her understand. I felt that she would know everything. That I would be submerged. Drowned out, you see. That's how it is. I don't know why. The old man dropped into a chair by the lamp and, and the boy listened, filled with awe. Go away, boy said the man. George Willard shook his head and, and a note of command came into his voice. Don't stop now. Tell me the rest of it. Enoch Robinson sprang to his feet and ran to the window that looked down into the deserted main street of Winesburg. George Willard followed. By the window the two stood, the tall, awkward boy man and the little wrinkled man boy. The childish, eager voice carried forward the tale. I swore at her, he explained. I said vile words. I ordered her to get away and not come back. Oh, I said terrible things. At first she pretended not to understand, but I kept at it. I screamed and stomped on the floor. I made the house ring with my curses. I did not want ever to see her again. And I knew after some of the things I said that I would never see her again. The old man's voice broke and he shook his head. Things went to smash, he said quietly and sadly. Out she went through the door. And all of the life there had been in the room followed her out. She took all my people away. They all went out through the door after. That's the way it was. Quote. And this last is an excerpt from the book Member of the Wedding by Carson McCulliers. And the characters in this excerpt, which um, I, have, I, I have several excerpts put together, but um, is a 12-year-old a young white southern girl and the housemaid um, a black housekeeper woman who has been like a really like a mother in a way to the the girl whose name is Frankie Jasmine <laughs> and Frankie Jasmine is caught in the same kinds of tension that we've been we've been reading about or talking about in the other excerpts, but in the other direction, I suppose we will see, as we will see. Frankie Jasmine's life has been somewhat alone and lonely 
in her town up until this time, and her brother is about to take a new wife, and things are about to change. So here is um, the excerpt. Quote, Listen, F. Jasmine said, What I've been trying to say is this. Doesn't it strike you as strange that I'm I and you are you? I am F. Jasmine Adams, and you are Bernie Sadie Brown. And we can look at each other and touch each other and stay together year in and year out in the same room. Yet always, I'm I, and you're you. And I can't ever be anything else but me, and you can't ever be anything else but you. Have you ever thought of that? And does it seem strange to you? Jasmine stood with her hands clasped behind her head, facing the darkening room. She had the feeling that unknown words were in her throat, and now was the time for her to name them. This is what I mean, F. Jasmine said. You are walking home a street, you're walking down a street, and you meet somebody, anybody, and you look at each other, and you're you, and he's him. Yet when you look at each other, the eyes make a connection. Then you go off one way, and he goes off another way. You go off into different parts of town, and maybe you never see each other again, not in your whole life. Do you see what I mean? Not exactly said Bernice. I'm talking about this town, F. Jasmine said in a higher voice. There are all these people here I don't even know by sight or name, and we pass alongside each other and don't have any connection. And they don't know me, and I don't know them, and now I'm leaving town, and there are all these people I will never know. But who do you want to know? asked Bernice. F. Jasmine answered, Everybody in the world, everybody in the whole world. Why, I wish you would listen to that, said Bernice. How about people like Willie Rhodes? How about this, them Germans? How about Japanese? F. Jasmine knocked her head against the door jamb and looked up at the dark ceiling. Her voice broke, and again she said, That's not what I mean. That's not what I'm talking about. Well, what is you talking about? asked Bernice. F. Jasmine shook her head, almost as though she did not know. Her heart was dark and silent, and from her heart the unknown words flowered and bloomed, and she wanted to name them. Yesterday, and all the twelve years of her life, she had only been Frankie Jasmine. She was an eye person who had to walk around and do things by herself. All other people had a we to claim, all others except her. Now all this was suddenly over with and changed. There was her brother and his bride, and it was as though when first she saw them, something she had known inside of her came clear. They are the we of me. And now she said, we, we will meet everybody. We'll just walk up to people and know them right away. We'll be walking down a dark road and see a lighted house and knock on the door, and strangers will rush to meet us and say, Come in, come in. We'll be members of the whole world. Boy, oh, man. 
Man, oh boy. Come here and sit in my lap, said Bernice, and rest a minute. F. Jasmine rolled her head and rested her face against Bernice's shoulder. She could feel Bernice's soft, wide stomach and her warm, solid legs. She had been breathing very fast, but after a minute or two, her breath slowed down so that she breathed in time with Bernice. The two of them were close together as one body, and Bernice's stiffened hands were clasped around F. Jasmine's chest. I think I have a vague idea what you're driving at, she said. We all of us somehow caught. We born this way or that, and we don't know why, but we caught anyhow. I born Bernice, you born Frankie. John Henry here born John Henry. And maybe we wants to widen and bust free. But no matter what we do, we still caught. Me is me, and you is you, and he is he. We each of us somehow caught all by ourselves. Is that what you's trying to say? I don't know, F. Jasmine said. But I don't want to be caught. F. Jasmine's voice was thin and high. What's it all about? People loose and at the same time caught, caught and loose. All these people. And you don't know what joins them up. There's bound to be some sort of reason and connection. Yet somehow, I can't seem to name it. I just don't know. The next is a very brief quotation from a book called Love and Will by Rollo May. Quote, Every person experiencing as he does his own solitariness and aloneness longs for union with another. He yearns to participate in a relationship greater than himself. So that, those are some of the quotes that I wanted to read to just invite our thinking about this tension so well described by these famous authors between that drive in us for individuality and that absolute need in us for connectivity and for being immersed in the big body of life.